Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Hey, Cramaholics, welcome back to our podcast. It's your host, Holly, and today I've got another Missing Monday for you. Missing Monday is a segment that was created by Kenzie and I to help keep missing persons' name and information in the media the best we can and to help aid in their return home. 90,000 people in the U.S. are missing at any given time, and while some are found alive or deceased, the majority are still missing today. On this segment of Missing Monday, I will be sharing the information about Jennifer Kessie. Jennifer Joyce Kessie was a 24-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, beautiful woman with a megawatt, brilliant white smile who went missing on January 23rd, 2006 from Orlando, Florida. Jennifer seemed to literally have everything that any young woman could ever hope for. She was successful in her career, working as a finance manager for Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company in Okoe, Florida. She had just bought her new condo and was proud to have a place of her own that she worked so incredibly hard for. Which I have to say, being a 24-year-old woman, purchasing your own condo completely by yourself in Orlando, Florida, to me, sounds super impressive. It just goes to show how driven Jennifer was in all aspects of her life, and she just clearly had her stuff together. However, it was said that this condo was in a little bit of a rough area of town. The area, though, I know was under some construction and renovations and a major overhaul where they were trying to revamp this area and bring back a safer and more beautiful community. According to an article published by Medium.com, Jennifer's parents, Drew and Joyce, were a little uneasy about the fact that she was living in this part of the town, but they felt that she would be okay they raised her right and they raised her to be super alert of her surroundings they taught her to always take safety precautions to protect herself she would walk with her keys between her fingers in case she needed to ward anybody off who attacked her she would carry pepper spray when she left her house and she also always called her family to check in with them when she got home and before she went to bed and was always in constant contact with them. Jennifer was so vigilant that if she had to walk outside for any reason at night, she always made sure to be on the phone talking to somebody so that people could hear what was going on around her and where she was. Jennifer also had a boyfriend who she had been dating for about a year at this point named Robert Allen who went by just Rob. Rob and Jennifer went on a vacation right before she went missing to the U.S. Virgin Islands. During this time when Jennifer and Rob were on their vacation, her brother and a few of his buddies stayed at her condo. On the night of Sunday, January 22nd, Jennifer and Rob make it back to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and she decides just to go ahead and stay the night at his place for the night instead of going home. The following morning around 6 a.m., Jennifer left Rob's house to head into work, 
and she worked a full day, no issues, everything was normal, and she left work around 6 p.m. and headed home to her condo. She goes home, talks on the phone with her parents, she talks on the phone with her brother, and was discussing with him about the fact that his friend left his phone at her condo. And she ends up calling this friend and speaking with him as well, and they make arrangements for her to ship him his cell phone. According to the timeline I found on JenniferKessie.com, Jennifer called and spoke with Rob around 9.57 p.m. When she called, she was already in bed, and they chatted only briefly. Everything was said to be normal. Jennifer was just tired from vacation and getting back to work. They said they're normal, I miss yous, I love yous, and I'll see you soon. Tuesday, January 24th, 2006, Rob was expecting Jennifer to call or text him like she usually does first thing in the morning before work. Jennifer's mom says in an interview that Jennifer always left her house every single morning between 7.30 and 8 o'clock to head to work. When Rob didn't hear from her, he tried giving her a call and it went to voicemail and his text messages went unanswered. Rob knew that Jennifer had a work meeting at 11 a.m. so he figured that he would hear from her sometime after that. Rob himself had a meeting that morning at work and sometime between 10 and 11 a.m. his meeting wraps up and he decides to go ahead and try calling Jennifer again. Again, her phone went straight to voicemail and he began feeling like this was a little bit off because they usually are always in some sort of communication. When Jennifer didn't show up for work and an hour had gone by and still no Jennifer, her co-workers decided to call her parents, which This put her parents in a immediate panic. The daughter that was so responsible, so reliable, and worked so incredibly hard would not, just not show up for work. So they began calling her, and again, all the calls went to voicemail. They called Rob and found out that he also hadn't heard from Jennifer. They called her brother Logan, and they began making their arrangements to head to Orlando to try and find her. Around 12 p.m., Logan arrived first to Jennifer's condo, and when he got there, he noticed that her car was not parked in the parking lot. Still, he ran upstairs to the door to see if it was open or unlocked, and it wasn't open. He began banging on the door, yelling her name, and no answer. Logan ran back out into the parking lot and he spotted some construction workers. The condo that Jennifer had lived in were all brand new and they were still building new buildings. So there was a lot of construction workers coming in and out of that area. Logan spotted one of the working vans and he ran up to it, knocked on the window and was kind of yelling at them like, hey, have you seen my sister? Have you seen this girl? And the people inside the van refused to roll the window down to talk to them. And they literally would not answer him, like, at all. Next, Jennifer's parents show up, and they call the property manager, and he came out and met them at Jennifer's unit. When the manager unlocked the door, not a single thing was out of the ordinary. There had been clearly no forced entry into her home. There wasn't a window broken. There wasn't a window open. The door hadn't been tampered with. It wasn't kicked in. And inside the condo, it appeared to be completely normal. Everything looked as if Jennifer was getting ready for her daily life. There was a hairdryer left on the counter. There was makeup that was out. It looked like she had had some outfits that she was debating wearing that day because they were tossed on her bed. The inside of the shower was wet like she had taken a shower. There was a wet towel on top of the wash machine. So it 
appeared to everybody that Jennifer had gotten ready that morning like she normally would for a work day. They did notice that her cell phone, her briefcase, and her purse were all missing from her home. They also noticed that that cell phone that she was going to mail back to her brother's friend wasn't there as well. Friends of the Kessie family acted fast and began making flyers, searching, calling hospitals, and calling local businesses to see if anyone had seen Jennifer. They all literally came together and surrounded this family with so much loving support and did anything that they could to help. Law enforcement's first take on this was that she's an adult, she'll likely be back in a few hours, if not a few days. Which, this is one thing that I absolutely hate about adult missing persons cases. Precious time is wasted on talking about the fact that they're an adult, they'll likely come back, they're free to make their own decisions, and I absolutely hate that. And I can understand where they're coming from, because in the sense that does happen in some cases... But I feel that most of the time, families know what is out of character for their loved ones, even if they are an adult or not. They kept telling law enforcement, though, that this is not like Jen. This is not normal. This is absolutely 100% no way that she would run off. Finally, in the evening, law enforcement decided that due to her family ties and how she was constantly in communication with them, that maybe there was something that was not normal. So they began to look at this as if something bad had happened. It didn't take long for the first break in the case to come. On Thursday, January 26, just two days after Jennifer went missing, a woman had seen the morning news with a detailed description of Jennifer and her missing black Chevy Malibu. And she realized that she had actually seen that car sitting in her apartment complex for two days and she had never seen it there before. The car was parked at Huntington on the Green Apartments, which was about a mile away from where Jennifer lived. Again, this is a rougher part of Orlando, and there was said to be a lot of crime in this area of the Huntington on the Green's apartments. Jennifer's car was parked in a visitor's space. Fearfully, investigators got to the car, they got it open, they popped open the trunk, and Jennifer was not inside. Inside the car, they expected to find some sort of clue or evidence, but they really didn't get much out of it. They were able to pull a single latent print and one small fiber of DNA. Investigators also quickly noticed that there was things that were of value inside of Jennifer's car. She had a DVD player in the backseat and other belongings that had been left completely untouched. So it was apparent that this wasn't a robbery. That wasn't the motive for Jennifer going missing. It was also noticed that the driver's seat position was pushed all the way back. Investigators started scanning the area looking for possible cameras or anybody that could have seen something. They were able to locate two different cameras in the complex that could have picked up whoever was driving this car. One of the cameras caught Jennifer's car pulling into a parking space around noon on the day that Jennifer went missing. The car is seen pulling in, backing up to correct the way that it was parked, and then pulling forward again. The person who was inside the car sat inside the vehicle for 32 seconds, presumably to quickly wipe the car clean. And then they got out and walked away. 
This footage, though, was so grainy that you could not make out any kind of details whatsoever about this person. The second camera picked up a little bit better of a picture. In this video, you can see the person of interest walking behind the fencing of the pool at the complex. But unfortunately, every single frame of this video, the person's face is blocked by a pole on the fence. NASA was called in to see if they could sharpen these images of the person of interest, and they were able to enhance the photo, but not enough where investigators could get a clear picture of this person's face because of those stinking fence poles. The FBI was also called in to analyze the footage to see if they could figure out if the individual was either male or female and about roughly how tall this person was. They weren't able to identify whether it was a female or a male, but they were able to figure out that the person was roughly 5'3 to 5'5 in height, which I find this super odd considering the detail about the seat of her car being pushed all the way back. I'm 5'5 myself and my husband makes fun of me for having my seat so close to the steering wheel. I can't imagine someone at 5'3 or 5'5 height needing the seat pushed all of the way back. I also want to note here that according to True Crime Society, the Orlando Police Department never processed Jennifer's condo and they said that's because her family contaminated it by being in there. However, after the family looked around a little bit more, they did find one thing that was interesting to them. Inside the hamper in Jennifer's closet was apparently a men's v-neck blue Banana Republic sweater. Police never would take this in for examination, but according to True Crime Society, Jennifer's family still is holding on to this piece of potential evidence. Since the video footage did not bring any new leads, investigators were literally back at the start with no possible people that they were looking at. So they began combing through everyone that Jennifer knew. Her parents, her brother, her boyfriend Rob, they all were ruled out pretty quickly. And then everybody had their own little theories. Rob thought maybe it was a possibility that she was sex trafficked. Sex trafficking in Florida was super high around this time, and it's quite possible that someone got a hold of her and forced her into human trafficking. Jennifer's brother Logan, however, believed that the construction workers had something to do with it. As stated earlier, these condos were brand new. They were being built. There was construction workers in and out of this area of Jennifer's condo every single day. They arrived between 7 and 8 a.m., so they likely were there when Jennifer left every single morning. Could one of these construction workers had watched her for days on end, learning her times that she left, and then waited for an opportunity to strike? Jennifer's parents report in an interview that she actually had felt uncomfortable by all of these construction workers. Jennifer was a beautiful woman, and it was really apparent to anyone around that she lived alone. Not only that, but many, many occasions, these men would make catcalls at Jennifer or stare at her a little too long, and it really made her uncomfortable. There was a few things that needed to be touched up apparently inside of Jennifer's condo, so the workers had a key. And again, 
they knew she was living alone. But when investigators started pursuing this lead, they quickly realized that this one wouldn't be easy to follow. They found that the large majority of the workers that worked for this construction company were undocumented workers. They did their best at tracking down everybody that they could to interview them, but it was near impossible to actually know who was there working and at what time they were there working. They were told that it was practically impossible and that lead kind of dropped off. There was also rumors that it could have been someone at Jennifer's work or at the gym that she went to or even her ex-boyfriend, Matt. Jennifer's ex-boyfriend, Matt, happened to be one of the individuals who stayed in her condo with her brother while she was on vacation. And it was also reported that Matt had been extremely intoxicated at a bar that was located literally across the street from her condo on the night that Jennifer was last heard from. Matt also had been very very distraught before she had gone missing about their breakup and was trying to do anything and everything he could to get her back. He was brought in for questioning and nothing came of it and he, to the investigators' opinions, was not involved from what they could tell. Next, investigators interviewed people who worked with Jennifer. There was one individual her family knew about that wasn't getting the hint that she wasn't interested in dating him. This man was investigated and questioned many times. And about four years after Jennifer went missing, one of the people who worked with Jennifer filed a harassment complaint against the very same man who was questioned about Jennifer's disappearance. The employee who filed this complaint also wrote in there that he was afraid that whatever happened to Jennifer would happen to him. Again, nothing came of this either, despite her family wishing that investigators would take this one lead a little bit more seriously. A year after Jennifer went missing, a $1 million cash reward was put up for Jennifer's safe return. With that kind of money up there on the line, you would think that someone would cave and start talking. But again, no new leads about Jennifer's whereabouts. Her family gets desperate trying to put her name and her face out there anywhere that they can. They drive around with pictures of Jennifer made into car decals on their car. They have a billboard that has her picture and her information. They even went as far as having Jennifer's face put on the back of a deck of playing cards. And then they gave them to the jails and the prisons, hoping that another inmate would know something about her. In 2009, a convicted murderer in prison named David Ross claimed that he had details about Jennifer's whereabouts. Jennifer's father, Drew, drove down to the prison and was able to speak to him, and he quickly realized that this guy knew absolutely nothing about Jennifer. He was just one of many people who said they knew something, which is absolutely disgusting, and I hear it so much when looking at all of these cases. Families getting these calls from a bunch of randos saying that they know something about their missing or murdered child. It's absolutely sick, and it's disgusting, and it's a cruel joke to play on these people who are so heartbroken without their loved one. I did come across one theory, though, that I found extremely interesting and quite possible. It came off of Reddit, and the user states that what if Jennifer truly was killed by her ex-boyfriend, Matt? 
This user states that what if Matt was so drunk he thought that stumbling across the street to Jennifer's condo was a good idea and that perhaps Jennifer let him inside, but she didn't tell Rob in a call or a text because she was worried about him thinking something bad about them being together. But maybe she let him inside to sleep it off and that whatever happened to Jennifer happened later. The user continues on to mention that blue banana republic sweater that nobody could see seem to identify. What if that belonged to the ex-boyfriend? I personally don't know how I feel about this theory, but I do think it is a possibility. But I also think that it is quite a possibility that these construction workers were somehow involved since they knew Jennifer's typical routine. What if one of them was waiting for her when she left to leave for work that morning and he took her and did something with her? Or perhaps she turned down his advances and he snapped. Jennifer's family has been in some legal battles with the Orlando Police Department recently to get all of the police files in regard to her case. In March of 2019, the family was finally able to receive all of these records and it ended up being over 14,000 pages of electronic files and hours upon hours of video. On November 8th, 2019, while digging through all of these papers, the Kessie family's private investigator gets their second big break of the case. According to an article published by NBC News, a tip came in from a woman in 2006 who stated that she witnessed something strange at Lake Fisher in Orange County on the day that Jennifer went missing. She claimed to have seen a man driving a pickup truck at the lake remove a six to eight foot rolled up piece of carpet and he dumped it into the lake. She said that the man waited there to watch it sink to the bottom. The family's investigative team began searching that area with a cadaver dog and the dog alerted them to something. And according to the NBC News article, the Orange County Sheriff's Department did a three-day search where they brought in their own dive team and their own cadaver dogs to go around that area. And at the end of the search, they were not able to find anything. The Kessie family told Dateline that they will never stop searching for Jennifer. Jennifer's mother, Joyce, stated, quote, If she's not alive, we just want some kind of proof that she's not with us anymore. The teeniest bone, something. The hardest part is being in limbo. That's hell. The nightmare, to not know. Drew and I are in our 60s. We just want to know where she is, what happened to her, before it's too late for us. You can find Jennifer's Facebook group that you can join when you search for Help Find Jennifer Kessie. You can also find pictures and information on the family's website, jenniferkessie.com. Be sure to also join our podcast Facebook group called Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. I will have all the pictures and surveillance footage available to check out. You can also follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. Also, be sure to hit subscribe on whatever your preferred podcast platform is so you're notified that every single time when a new episode goes live. Crimeaholics, that's all for now. Until next time, be aware and take care. Thank you. 
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 